Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Again, we welcome you to North Main Street Church of God. If you're joining us online on TV today, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, we're starting a new series today. Um, we did a marriage series in September, October. We did a kind of a parenting series by looking at the dysfunctional families of the Bible. And today we start a series entitled Good Grief. And yeah, it's kind of based on the Charlie Brown theme. But the reality is grief though not a part of God's original creation, can serve as a means for good if you grieve well. And this month, I want to talk about how to grieve well. We've all lost somebody in our lives. We've lost jobs. We've lost, um, you know, income, circumstances. Uh, we may have an estranged relationship. Maybe we've lost a friendship. The reality is grief hits us in many different ways at many different times. Yes, you may have lost a marriage. You may have lost uh, a child, a tragic circumstances. Uh, the reality is we all suffer sorrow, pain, and grief that drives us sometimes to our knees and sometimes to shake our fist at God. Suffice it to say, Again, grief was not a part of God's original creation. Everything was good and right and holy and perfect. There was no sin or death or sorrow or sadness or tears. There was nothing like that at the very beginning of time with the first humans. But grief resulted through the processes of sorrow and pain entering God's creation through what we call sin. And sin as simply stated as I can put it, is called, yes, missing the mark, or, or we could say it's not living up to God's best. And what is God's best? And how do I find what God's best is? Well, as Christians, our answer should always be the Word of God. Now, there are two words of God, and before this is taken out of context, let me clarify. There is a physical word of God we call the Bible. But then we are told in the New Testament that that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And who is the word? The word is Christ. He was the living embodiment of the very word of God. In Matthew chapter 5, he tells us, I didn't come to abolish the law, which are the words of God in the Old Testament. I came to to fulfill it and to make sure every bit of it is accomplished. How did he do that? Not through us, but through himself. As he hung on the cross, he who was perfect in every way suffered the punishment for sins, not that he had committed, but that all of humanity had committed since the beginning of time and the taking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to present day. Does that mean everybody is saved? No, and there's where sorrow comes into play. Sorrow isn't just a manifestation of death and tragic circumstances. Sorrow is because sin still exists in this world. And we see daily on the news, in the newspapers, listening on the radio, the effects of sin as it continues to unfold in, human, in humanity across the face of the globe. So, how can grief be good? In order to understand how grief can be good, we need to understand what grief actually is. According to the dictionary, grief means it's a keen mental suffering or distress over affliction or loss, sharp sorrow, or it can be painful regret. However, I like what Edgar Jackson writes. Listen to what he says about grief. Grief is a young widow trying to raise her three children alone. Grief is a man who's so filled with shocked uncertainty and confusion that he strikes out at the nearest person. Grief is the mother walking daily to a nearby cemetery to quietly stand alone for a few minutes before going out about the tasks of the day. She knows that a part of her is in that cemetery. 
just as part of her is in her daily work. Grief is the silent, knife-like terror and sadness that comes a hundred times a day when you start to speak to someone who's no longer there. Grief is the emptiness that comes when you eat alone after eating with someone for many, many years. Grief is teaching yourself to go to bed without saying goodnight to the one that had died. Grief is the helpless wishing that things were different when you know they are never again going to be the same. Grief is a whole cluster of adjustments, apprehensions, uncertainties that strike life in its forward progression and make it difficult to redirect the energies of life. As I said many times before, I've been a pastor for over two decades now at three different churches, and grief is the same in every location I've been. In three different states, grief has been grief, and it hits people. It is not a respecter of persons. It plays no favorites. But one of the things I know that is very tragic about grief, when it can be a good thing, is when somebody gets stuck in a stage of grief. I've seen it over and over again. You see, grief is a process, and there's no defined time limit on it. But what I've noticed, from time to time, people can get stuck in a place of anger, a place of denial, a place of depression for years decades and never move out. It becomes almost this weird friend depression or this weird friend anger that if you stick in this place of anger for too long, it becomes your bosom buddy. And you become bitter, resentful, hateful, and angry at everybody and everything, though they may have never done anything to you. Have you met people like that? I think we all have. There are people whose backstories I have no clue of that I come and talk to that are just mean and hateful and bitter and resentful people. And instead of taking it personally, which I used to do all the time, and sometimes I still do, I stop myself and say, wonder where that deep hurt finds its root. We weren't created to be stuck. We were created to move forward. And moving forward doesn't mean we forget the ones that we've lost. But it means honoring them with the way we live our lives. And if we can't honor somebody by the way we live our lives and we get stuck in anger, we're not honoring them. We're actually besmirching their character and reputation. I knew of a lady once at a previous church that I pastored whose son died of a tragic motorcycle accident about age 19 or 20. She has a daughter. But that tragic circumstance, and I can't imagine what it's like to lose a child. Some of you know. And I, I, I don't assume to know what you've gone through. But this lady so tragically got stuck in a place of denial and depression that even into her 70s, and now 80s, it still affects her. Not that you don't have sorrow or sadness at the loss of your loved one. I know people who have lost children who are now in their 80s and 90s and still brings tears to their eyes after so many decades ago of loss. But this lady, 20, 30 years after her son's death, still had the leftovers from his meal he had eaten the night before in the freezer and never took them out. Now you can say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. And I could say, well, okay, there's a good argument, there's nothing wrong with it, but the problem was she got stuck. She didn't come to the place of acceptance. Well, I don't want to accept the tragic circumstances that took my, love, took my loved one or took my job or took my spouse away from me. I don't want to accept that. Then you'll get stuck and you'll become bitter, you'll become depressed, and you won't move. See, I believe in a God, and I hope you do too, that is a God of healing and of hope. 
one who truly is able to reach into the deepest, darkest, darkest places of our lives, the place where the pain hurts so bad, and he's able to bring the healing to that wound, but it doesn't happen overnight. It requires an extraction and a cleaning of that wound. And sometimes, have you ever gotten a cut on the surface of your skin? My mom used to love using rubbing alcohol. <laughs> well, let's just put some rubbing alcohol. Mom, I'm sorry. I'm throwing you under the bus again. She's watching from home, I'm sure. Uh, cutting and putting rubbing alcohol. Have you ever put rubbing alcohol in a fresh wound? I mean, I'm talking about the isopropyl alcohol 70% stuff. I'm not talking about the, the hand sanitizer, which burns enough. I'm talking about putting that, you know, that stuff on there. I got chiggers as a kid. Do you know what a chigger is, or is that just a southern thing? Okay, so there's these little bitty tiny red things that burrow under the skin, and they make you itch. I won't tell you where they like to go, but to the warmest, darkest places on your body. Every little boy knows what I'm talking about from the south. And you dig and scratch and scratch and dig to your raw, and mama brings the isopropyl alcohol out and just pours it all over that spot. Guess what? That doesn't work. But it lights you on fire. Where was I? Sorry, I'm just thinking back to childhood traumas. And... All right, let's come back. Come back with me. So the tools that God uses are always good, but they're not always pain-free. I want you to hear me on this. The things that have burrowed themselves deep into the recesses of your heart and your mind that have become a part of you that need to be extracted may have overgrowth over top of them. It's kind of like a cancer where the fibers and the fabric of your blood vessels can grow around these cancerous tumors and cells. And sometimes they, this is why they call them inoperable if they're close to some major, issue, or major arteries or things like that. And so they try to shrink them through chemotherapy or radiation in order to extract it. In order to extract the bad things from your life, God has to do an excision. Now, he doesn't come in with a machete, but he comes in with, he does it. He comes in with a scalpel. And he knows exactly where to cut, exactly what to do, but he never promises that it will be pain free. But some of us are so worried and fearful about having something like that taken from us that we've believed the lie of the enemy that says you have to have that or you will forget. You have to have that so that you stay humble. You have to have that so that fill in the blank. And God says, I don't want you to have that. I died for that. Let me take it from you. See, the process to our safety, salvation, and healing, especially through times of grief, is allowing God to take it to walk through those deep, dark valleys with us and to realize we're not alone even when we feel the most alone in the world. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, says one of the most profound statements that seems honestly contradictory when you read it, but it's not. It's in Matthew 5, 4, and it's in one of those uh, chapters that we call, uh, that's a part of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's in one of those sections we know as the Beatitudes, or the blessings. And, and Jesus says to the crowds that had gathered around the mount that day, some people believe there weren't just hundreds, but possibly thousands of people that had gathered to hear Jesus teach. And he says in verse 4, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Is it a blessing to mourn? It can be if you mourn with purpose. It can be if you mourn as one who has hope and not as one who has no hope, as Paul tells us in Thessalonians. We as believers don't weep as ones who have no hope. But Brandon, what about those we don't even know who have died and we don't know about their, their, their faith? 
Did they believe in Jesus? Did they not? I don't know. They didn't live like they did. They didn't act like, or what about those who have rejected Christ to their final breath? I've had those questions a million times. And I've done many, many funerals where the question mark was there, was this person saved? And everything in our being wants to, wants to allay the fears and to bring hope. But the only true hope is found in Christ Jesus. He's the only hope there ever is, ever was, or ever will be. And we can flower up a message and we can give people a false sense of hope, but a false sense of hope is the greatest highway to hell. You've heard me say, Brand, you've heard me say, um, there's always hope. And I do believe there's always hope. As long as you have breath in your, in your lungs, there's hope. Always hope for redemption, for reconciliation, for healing of deep hurts and wounds. But apart from Christ, there is no hope. That's the only caveat I will ever give. But here's the thing. Jesus, who hung on the cross, dying for the sins of humanity, who from the cross says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, is asking forgiveness of those who is bringing him such great and tremendous pain. Not only through their mockery, their jeering, their spitting on him, but through the abuse, the physical abuse of his body by being whipped and by being pierced through his hands and his feet. And so he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. God blesses those who mourn for they will be comforted. I believe Jesus was mourning on the cross when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wait, Jesus mourned? Yes, he even wept over the loss of his friend Lazarus, who he raised from the grave. Lazarus, come forth! Jesus was one, as Isaiah tells us, was acquainted with our griefs and sorrows in such a way that he even took those burdens upon himself, the full weight of those experiences upon himself in the final act that would bring us salvation. So yes, God blesses those who mourn because in him they will be comforted. William Barclay the late biblical scholar and author from Scotland writes, of all the paradoxes of the Beatitudes, surely this is the most violent, he says. It's an astonishing thing to speak of the joy of sorrow, of the gladness of grief and of the bliss of the brokenhearted. The word which the authorized version translates as mourn is one of the strongest words for mourning in the Greek language. It's used for mourning of the dead. Very often it's associated with, with another Greek word which means to weep. And weeping isn't just silently crying. The word for weep in, in scripture is a gut-wrenching crying out through tears and screams. Weeping is this place of utter desperation where your soul cries out and you can feel the depths of this sorrow in your bones. That's weeping. He goes further to explain through the very word that is used to describe this type of mourning. Two things are immediately clear. It's the sorrow which pierces the heart. It is no gentle, sentimental, twilight sadness in which man can languish and luxuriate. It is a sorrow that is poignant, piercing, and intense. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's the sorrow which can be seen in a man's bearing, in a man's face, in a man's tears. It's the sorrow which man is bound to show to the world. 
and to show to God because he cannot help it. It is one of those uncontrollable, I can't hold this back feelings and emotions. That's what God blesses. The Gospel of Luke also has a mirror image of these beatitudes. Luke describes it this way. God blesses you when you weep. Uh, God blesses you who weep now, for in due time you will laugh. You see what the author is getting at in Luke and what the author is getting at in Matthew is that when Jesus spoke these words, he's telling us that when we mourn, it's temporary. The only mourning that is not temporary is the one who never changes, the one who rejects Christ, the one who pushes back or, as the scripture says, kicks at the goads. The one who finds true healing is the one who knows that this is a season and if I go through this season called winter emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally, psychologically, if I can go through the winter, spring's coming. You can smell the freshness in the air when things start to bud and when rivers start to melt. You have the smell in the air just as you do in fall. God calls us to this kind of mourning because it's healing and because it's temporary. And that we who are mourning as believers know there's an end because of what Christ Jesus did for us. So what are the points I have for you this morning? Actually, we've got several other scriptures. Let me, let, me, let me point to these scriptures really quickly. Luke chapter 4. What does Jesus say? This is Jesus' mission statement straight from Isaiah. Isaiah, I believe it's 62 don't, or 61. Don't quote me on that. But Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 19. Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. This is after his baptism, his wilderness wonder, or his 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, okay? He returns to Galilee, which is a region that he grew up in. Nazareth is a city in Galilee. Capernaum is a city in Galilee on the coast of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. So he returns to Galilee after being baptized in the Jordan River, going out into the wilderness. He returns back home full of the Holy Spirit, and reports about him, it says, spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in the synagogues and was praised by everyone. At this point, he was. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood to read scriptures. It was allowed by men of faith in the local communities to be able to read from the scriptures that were on scrolls in a seat called the Moses seat in every synagogue. There was a seat that was set in the very end of the room, and then there were benches hewn out of stone usually around the outer edges of the sanctuary or the synagogue there. So if you imagine the sanctuary in which we're seated right now, they wouldn't be in rows like this. We would have rows and rows on the sides and on the back with an open center area, okay? all facing each other, and the Moses seat would have been at the head of all of the assembly, and the scroll would have been brought, and it would have been laid out on a table in front of the Moses seat, and Jesus would read. And I want you to hear what he read. And he didn't randomly read this. Think of how powerful this is. He was brought the scroll that would have been read for that day and that time. He's in Nazareth, in the synagogue, and they bring it out. And guess what the reading is for today? Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. And that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And he tells them, today this has been accomplished in your presence. He adds the commentary. He read that and then he tells them, it's me. That's me. Do you know what they did in Nazareth when he read that? They're all looking at each other. <laughs> Wait a minute. This Jesus... 
the Jesus of Joseph, the carpenter's son, right? Isn't this Mary and Joseph's son, their oldest? Who does he think he is? We've watched him raised since he was a baby. Oh, sure, we've heard the story surrounding his miraculous birth, yada, yada, yada. And now <laughs> he's going to blaspheme in front of us and say he's this guy? We've been waiting. For, our, our ancestors have waited forever for the Messiah, and now he's going to say he's the one that's fulfilling it? Come on. They got so incensed at his so-called blasphemy that they drove him out of town. They were actually driving him to the edge of a cliff in town to throw him off because they believed that kind of blasphemy deserved death because of what the Old Testament said about false prophets. And I'd love, if you read a little bit further on, it says he just walked right through the crowd. <laughs> I don't think it was like magical. It just says... They took him to the edge of the city, to a cliff, to throw him off. And he just turned and walked right through the crowd. You see, that's the kind of authority and power that Jesus had. It wasn't his time yet. What does the actual scroll of Isaiah say? Well, this is a little snippet. Let's go to Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom or liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to pro proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Do you hear that? And to grant those who mourn in Zion, which is Jerusalem, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Ashes were a symbol of mourning. When you were mourning the death of someone, you would put on burlap or you would tear your robes and you would put ash on your head and you would sit in a squatted position sometimes for weeks to show that you were in mourning. The oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, do you see what he's saying? At the coming of Christ, mourning is temporary. Think of those before Christ. They were awaiting a Messiah. That was their only hope. This Messiah would set captives free, would make the blind to see, the lame to walk again, the deaf to hear. And Jesus now, in that present situation, in the synagogue in Nazareth, is saying, it's completed. I'm here. But there's something about sitting in sorrow, pain, tragedy, or regret. It not only causes resentment and bitterness, it forces us not to believe. When the overwhelming feelings of sorrow rack us to the core, we can feel nothing else but pain. This is why I said earlier, the author of Isaiah says, he will be one who is acquainted with our griefs and sorrows, and by his stripes we can be what? Healed. Jesus who died on the cross, would leave his followers behind, or so they thought. <laughs> he would be buried in a tomb. <laughs> and they thought it was over. It says in Luke that there were two disciples after the Passover had occurred and they got up after the weekend, it was probably early Sunday morning because they were headed back home now. The Passover was over on Saturday by sundown. So the next morning they get up and they're making the trek back home. And, and these two disciples of Jesus, they're walking. And, and it says they, are, they look like they're under such a weight of distress. And they happen upon another traveler. And they welcome him on their journey, and he begins to ask them, why are you so downcast? And what do, what do they say to him? Real, are you, you got to be kidding, right? 
I mean, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what happened this weekend? I mean, this Jesus guy whose fame precedes himself in this region was crucified. Did you miss out on that somehow? And this traveler begins to speak words of life into their sorrow. And he, in essence, rebukes them in the midst of their distress because he says, have you forgotten what he told you? That these things must happen to fulfill the prophets of the Old Testament. That these things must happen. But he promised you something. Do you remember what he promised you? It was promises laden with hope. And now you're going back in distress and sorrow? And it says they got to a place where sun was going down and they were going to bed down for the night and continue their trip for the next day. And it says this traveler was going to keep going on. But see, here's one of those things about this traveler. He will only stay where he's welcomed. And so he says, okay, I'll bed down with you for the night. And so they're around the fire that evening, getting ready to have a meal together. They would typically travel with this unleavened bread because it was easier to pack. It didn't take up as much space. And so it says while they're around the fire that night, more than likely eating fish, which was a staple in that region, he takes the bread, this traveler, and he tears it in two to pass it out. And it says their eyes were opened and they saw that this traveler was Jesus. See, this is one of the cool things about Jesus. He's with you in the suffering if you're able to see it. But most of us don't have eyes to see it. And the reason is because we're blinded in our grief. When grief is a tool to get us to this place of acceptance. Grief isn't a valley we were meant to live in. It is a means to an end. This sorrow that we can be blessed in is temporary because we have one who has conquered the grave. (laughs) Here's our key point. Our brokenness reminds us of our need for God who is the great comforter. And the first point that illustrates this is our brokenness. In our brokenness, we are often able to see our need for God if we have eyes to see. If you embrace the sorrow, you realize that there is one in whom sorrows come to an end. If we embrace it and not reject it, if we go through that dark valley knowing he is with us, the blinders will be off. We don't have to walk in distress. Yes, we walk in sorrow, but not distress. Not hopeless as those disciples were who were walking with Jesus, that lone traveler. Let it not take us the whole journey before we realize that Jesus has been by us all along beckoning us to his promises. The second thing is, in our brokenness, we are often able to see the world's need for God. This is one of the cool things about this verse, is that many scholars believe that the brokenness or those who mourn are the ones who are not just mourning for themselves, but have an outward perspective on the world, and they mourn at the sin in the world. Yes, there's one thing to mourn about your own sin and sorrow and loss. It's another thing altogether to mourn about the loss of others. We call this intercessory type prayer. Moses, do you remember his story? (sighs) Moses is on the mountaintop with God, and he's up there for a long time. They were not the microwave generation, but still, 40 days is a long time to be without your leader. Did he die? 
we're not allowed to even approach the mountain or we'll die, so we got to stay here, but where did he go? And so they began to not only question where Moses is and if he's coming back, but they began to doubt God. And so they beg Aaron, Moses' brother, to build for them an object of worship because obviously Moses isn't coming back. And Aaron, I'm going to guess, pushed back a little bit, but not enough to stop them. And he gathered all of the gold jewelry, earrings, anything that was golden that he can get from all the peoples, and they melted it down and formed a golden calf. And do you know what the people did? What well, says they began to worship the golden calf? And in those days, in the pagan era, they worshipped as the Egyptians would worship. In order to get their God to pay notice, they were chanting and jumping around in this wild frenzy around this calf. We don't get that through what we read, but typically if you were worshipping an object, you would be cutting yourself. You would be jumping around and chanting and going into some trance. And God hears the cries of the people toward another God who isn't even real, and he advises Moses. And in the whole scene of all of that, as Moses goes down to take note of what's going on and there's punishment that gets doled out, God says, I'm done. I'm done. I'm going to wipe all of them out in one fell swoop. Obviously, they don't love me enough to obey me, and so they're done. I'm done with them. And Moses, I'm going to start with you. And I'll take your descendants through your wife, and I will make a mighty nation that will inhabit the land that I've promised to give you. And Moses could have said, wow, that's a sweet deal. I'll take it. But what does he do? Much like this point, he is broken. It's not that God's not broken. God is broken to the point where he's ready to pour out his wrath. His wrath is initiated by that sorrow. And Moses says, oh Lord, please don't do, the, the people back in Egypt, they're gonna ask who is this God that brings his people into the desert to wipe them out? What kind of a God is that? So God, Yahweh, if you're going to do that to them, take my name out of the book of life as well. You see, it's in the deep grief of mourning. If we are able to mourn well and grieve well the way God brings us through, that we are able to not only focus on self, but honestly be able to focus outward. And instead of being angry at people, we become saddened by the sin. You heard this term, hate the sin and not the sinner. Remember being taught that growing up as a kid. The reason that saying is held on is because it's true, even though we may think it's corny. If we are able to look at people as image bearers of God, even if it's a distorted and broken image in that person, we are able to see a different perspective, the perspective that God sees and that God sent his son to die for so that we don't become vessels of hatred and anger, but vessels of mourning and intercession for the lost. And lastly, it's in our brokenness that we are often able to become stronger than we were before. In her book entitled, First, We Quit Our Jobs, how fun would that be? Uh, in her book entitled, First, We Quit Our Jobs, I'm not saying I would quit my job. You're probably reading into that more. I'm saying it for you guys because I don't, it's not a job, forget it, we'll talk later. Anyway, <laughs> Marilyn Abraham writes these words. Listen to this, I want you to hear this. She says, we signed up for a hike with a ranger who told us one remarkable thing. They were out west in this great forest. He says, when a tree's life is threatened, stressed by the elements of fire, drought, or other calamity, 
It twists beneath its bark to reinforce and make itself stronger. On the surface, this new inner strength may not be visible, for the bark often continues to give the same vertical appearance. Only when the exterior is stripped away or when the tree is felled are its inner struggles revealed. You ever wondered why in forest fires, trees are often able to survive? They have this protective nature about them that when they are going through trauma, they become stronger, not weaker. That's why trees who are in areas where the wind is constantly blowing grow deeper roots. It's a part of the genetic makeup of these plants and trees to be able to branch out, if you will. Did you know there is also a type of tree in forests that actually interlink the roots together? Don't, I don't want to misquote. And I usually get somebody who always corrects me. So keep, I want you to come correct me afterward. But I believe it's the huge sequoias or the redwoods out in the west, on the west coast. You know how tall they are? They're humongous. You've seen them, right? They, they carved tunnels in some of them in the 1920s to drive cars through. That's how big these things are. But it said in this one article I was reading that the root system is extremely shallow. You would think it would be super deep, but it's not. It's shallow but wide, and they interlink with the roots, <laughs> with the roots of the other trees. So that when the winds blow... They are stabilized for the foundation that is wide and the interconnectedness of their brother and sister trees. When we grieve and when we mourn, when we experience hard times, sorrows, trials, tribulations, we weren't created to go it alone. Yes, Christ must be with us through the valleys, but we were created as the body of Christ to interlock arms and to hold one another up, to give one another strength when we don't have it or when someone doesn't have it. I heard people say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You definitely do not. But you were not created to be a lone Christian like the Lone Ranger. There's nothing magical about coming to a building. It's the people that inhabit the space and praise the Lord and fellowship with one another, breaking bread together, sharing in each other's joys and sorrows who are able to provide that network of strength within this thing we call the body of Christ. And oh, how sorrowful it is that in these last days, people have grown weary and tired and dare I say comfortable in a habit of just forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Are you becoming stronger than you were before? Let me close with this as I call our worship team forward. Warren Wearsby. How many of you are familiar with the name Warren Wearsby? Some of you older generations might have heard the name. One of my favorite authors. He tells a story, and I think I've read this before, but it bears repeating because it's timely for our message today. He tells a story of a miserable-looking woman recognized by F.B. Meyer on a train uh, and ventured to share with her her burden. You ever done that? You see somebody who's sorrowful, who just seems downcast, and you're like, it could be a complete stranger. You know, sometimes we're really scared because... We're afraid that we might get her head bit off. But obviously, F.B. Meyer saw this woman in her sorrow and distress and says, hey, can, can I ask you what's going on? Tell me what's happening. For years, she had cared for a crippled daughter who brought great joy to her life. She'd made tea for her each morning, then left for work, knowing that in the evening her daughter would be there when she arrived home. 
but the daughter suddenly died, and the grieving mother was alone and miserable by this point. She said, home, home isn't home anymore. Well, Meyer gave her wise counsel by telling her, when you go home and you put the key in the door, I want you to say this out loud. Jesus, I know you're here. And I want you to be ready to greet him directly when you open the door. And as you light the fire, tell him what has happened during your day. If anybody has been kind, tell him about that. If anybody's been unkind, tell him about that. Just as you would have told your daughter. At night, stretch out your hand in the darkness and say, Jesus, I know you are here. Well, as the story goes, it says some months later, F.B. Meyer was back in that same neighborhood, and he met that woman again, but he did not recognize her. Her face radiated joy instead of announcing misery. And she says this to F.B. Meyer, I went home after meeting with you, and I did exactly what you told me to do. And it was uncomfortable and weird and awkward at first. But I'm going to tell you, it's made all the difference in my life. And now I feel like I truly know him and not just know about him. So here's the question this morning. In your sorrow, have you found comfort in Christ? Some of you have been in sorrow for way too long, carrying the burdens not only of this life, but the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, the loss of a marriage. Where are you, and are you still stuck in that valley? Sometimes the valleys are long, but they are not eternal. They're only eternal for the ones who get lost, wandering in that dark valley alone, not realizing Jesus is along the path with them the whole way. What does he need to do to reveal himself to you? Is it tearing of bread? Is it whispering in your ear, it's me? And I will say this to my dying breath. Though it's not popular in the world we live in today, there is no hope apart from Christ. You will be stuck in a pit of sorrow and death until you come to know the Savior who can set you free from sin and death. And if you are a believer in Christ within an earshot of my voice this morning and you're stuck in a stage of grief like anger or depression or denial, God doesn't want you stuck there anymore. That's not why he sent his son, Jesus. Are any of you in need of rest? <laughs> that sweet, sweet rest that only Christ can give. Do any of you carry heavy burdens or sorrows? Why don't you take his yoke upon you and learn from him? For he's meek and humble at heart, and you can find rest for your soul. For his burden is easy and his yoke, his, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Our altars are always open. If you are stuck, if you're questioning, if you're in a pit, why leave this place continuing to be in the pit? Yes, it will be painful to get out of the pit. You may get a few bruises on the way out, but I promise you that it will be good. Our altars to my right, your left, are always open for those who want somebody to come pray with them. We have people that are at the waiting and at the ready to come and pray with you. And maybe you need to just tell somebody, I don't, I don't know what to do. You've heard me say my dad, two years before he died, felt the moving of the Lord on him when mom took him to a service and an evangelist was there and he was so moved by the spirit, he couldn't sit still in his seat anymore. And he grabbed her by the hand and took her up front with him and he's standing up front 
and the pastor or the evangelist says, what are you here for? And he says, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't, my wife has done, she knows everything about this. I don't know what to do. And he says, well, let's pray. And he takes him to the throne room of grace with confidence, knowing that Christ, not the pastor, can heal him from those deep wounds that have kept him in a place of lostness. If you don't want anybody to bother, you come to my left, you're right. You can kneel here, pray here, and no one will bother you. And as I make this appeal every week, it's not to manipulate you, tug at your heartstrings, and try to get you to do something that I want you to do. But if you hear that still small voice, if you feel your heart beginning to race, if you start to get antsy where you're sitting, I'm telling you it's the Holy Spirit. Don't think it's something that you ate this morning or you're getting low blood sugar levels. You are being beckoned by the Holy Spirit. And you have a choice. You could be obedient to that calling or you could sit writhing and wiggling and feeling that discomfort when he's saying, come to me. And you could say like that lady, Jesus, I know you're here. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we know you're here through the power of your Holy Spirit, the great comforter and advocate who intercedes for us with the Father. Thank you, Jesus, that we don't walk this road alone called life, but remind us that you're with us along the way because sometimes we get blinded by grief and sadness and anger and frustration and all of those things in our distress and not realize you've been walking in this journey with us. Our only hope is to have the blinders taken off and to realize you are who you say you are and that you love us. Bless us when we mourn because we believe in the promise of comfort from your very throne. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.